0: Hello, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today, I'm talking about the struggles of modern life. I hope you enjoy it. You know, a number of years ago, there was a, a fascinating article in the publication Psychology Today. It's a publication that that people that are are psychologists read, and it was uh, it was written by. Uh, A Dr. Martin Seligman, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And it's interesting, he called the article, or the title of the article was Boomer Blues. Now, I don't know if you know what a boomer is, or if you even fit into the baby boom generation. If you were born between 1945 and 1964, you're considered a baby boomer. This man had obviously done a great deal of research on our generation, which I am a part of. And he compared our generation with our parents' generations. In his research, he found, this was interesting, that the rate of depression among boomers compared to their parents' generation was 10 times higher. 10 times higher. And he says, this has become an epidemic with the baby boom generation. And then he made an incredible statement, and I don't know how he came up with this, but this is what he said, I quote, We are the most depressed generation in all of history. And then he gives the main reason why he believed this has happened, and though he, I don't think, was intending to give a spiritual answer, I feel like he did, because this is what he says. He says that boomers, I quote, have lost the art of learning how to relate their daily lives to a bigger cause for which they are living and which they believe is real and true. And then he says, their lives are totally focused on themselves, making money, having fun and all of their various hobbies. You know, many scholars would agree that probably one of the most thoughtful books that's been written in the last 30 or 40 years is Ernest Becker's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death. And you know what, he has a very similar take on this issue. He says every person seems to have a need for what he calls cosmic significance. In other words, purpose and meaning in their lives. And he says, throughout history, all the way up until modern times, people knew that they had value and purpose because of the transcendent, because of God. Becker said throughout history, people knew their place in the universe. They know who they were, they knew who they were, and they knew their value and identity. He says, but modern people have lost this. They've lost that sense of purpose. He says, we have become secular. He says, even most modern church-going people are secular, that their lives are not normally impacted personally by their beliefs. And he says, but Becker has a little different take. He thinks that what God has been displaced with is sex and romance. He says that this is why our culture's preoccupation with sex is outsized compared to other cultures in the past. And he says, what, what men have done, he says, we have, God has been displaced for us by some goddess. Now, it's interesting to note also that Becker, when he wrote the book, was an atheist. But apparently at the end of his life, he changed his mind. But it's an interesting point of view, it's an interesting take that he has now. Some of you may be saying, well, are you telling us that that we have become a godless nation? Well, here's another interesting fact. George Gallup, every year, along with a number of other pollsters, tries to kind of get their finger on the pulse of the religious life of America. In fact, Gallup supposedly has been doing this for 50 years. And the results have been consistent over year after year after year. For the last 50 years, over 90% of the population believes in God or some higher being or some higher power. But this is what's so important to know. These same polls reveal something very significant about us as modern people. These polls tell us that our belief in God has no dramatic impact on our lives. And they furthermore tell us that our belief in God does not help us answer the questions of purpose and meaning in life. I think this reveals what Ronald Roheiser calls, we are a nation of practical atheists. I don't know if you know that term, practical atheists. A practical atheist is a person who believes in God but lives his life as if God does not exist. In other words, most people believe in God, but He is irrelevant when it comes to the living of their lives. And I guess this morning I would ask the question, could that be true of my life? I personally think this is something that we need to think through because the ramifications are significant. Not only to me personally, but relationally as well. It's interesting, 3,500 years ago, Solomon in the book of Proverbs says that our knowledge of God is where we get our understanding of life. Our knowledge of God is how we interpret life. Dr. Tim Keller says, how we relate to God is the foundation of our thinking. It determines our view of life in the world. Now this morning I've mentioned a couple of these views. One, there's a view you have the view of God that He does not exist. You know, that is a take on spiritual reality, that there is no God. Another take, another view, is that He exists, but that He is pretty much irrelevant, except maybe on Sunday mornings when I'm in church. A third view that I would offer is that God is the King and Lord of my life, and I'm going to seek to serve and please Him with my life. You know, these are all three different views of God. Three different views of spiritual reality. And whether you realize it or not, all of your reasoning proceeds from this view. Because what you end up doing is you end up embracing or screening out all that fits or does not fit with your view of God. And this is why Solomon says that our understanding of God is the beginning of our knowledge. Dr. Armand Nikolai, who's one of the most prominent psychiatrists in our land today, he teaches psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and he says this about our view of God. He says it influences how we perceive ourselves, how we relate to others, how we adjust to adversity, And what we understand to be our purpose. Our view of God helps determine our values, our ethics, and our capacity for happiness. It helps us understand where we come from, our heritage, who we are, our identity, why we exist on this planet, our purpose, what drives us, our motivation, and where we are going, our destiny. And then he makes this incredible statement. He says, I quote, Nothing has more profound and more far-reaching implications for our lives than our view of God and the role He plays in our lives. Do you see the significance of this? And this is something we rarely even think about. I want to give you a couple of examples. Uh, Let me take, again, the one that Becker brings up, our our sexuality. Let me give you the view of, of sexuality from a biblical Judeo-Christian perspective. The the Judeo-Christian view of sexuality is that the healthiest, most meaningful, most satisfying, and most pleasurable sexual experience is found between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship called marriage. A covenant is a promise, a pledge of love and loyalty and faithfulness. A covenant involves continuity, the sense of a common future to look forward to, and a history to look back on together. A covenant means belonging, a commitment to a rich and growing relationship of love and care. If you remember, Jesus comes along in Matthew 19, quoting from the Old Testament, and says, A man shall leave his mother, father and mother, and he shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The word cleave is a word we don't use much. But it's a Hebrew word that means absolute unity. It means total union, deep, profound solidarity. Not just a physical union, but an emotional union, an economic union, a social union, a complete union. To cleave to someone is to say, I belong exclusively to you, permanently. Everything I have is yours. I am yours. And this is what marriage is. This is why God created sex, for cleaving. It's a cleaving apparatus. God made sex to be able to to say to another human being, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. All of me, everything. And that's the Christian view of sex. It's pretty powerful. But what about the modern view? The modern view is that sexuality is just another thing you do as far as recreation. You know the most prominent sexologist to ever live was a guy by the name of Alfred Kinsey. He did more research on sex than anybody. They even did a movie on his life. Liam Nielsen played the part of Alfred Kinsey. Kinsey was an atheist, so in his view, God had nothing to do with sex and sexuality. And he believed this that we are mammals, and you should enjoy sex with any other mammal, whether it's an animal, a child, your father, your mother, your aunt, your uncle, your brother, your sister. He says it really doesn't matter. Now, I I know you're probably thinking, you know, that's a pretty extreme view. That's a pretty twisted view, and that most people today don't really buy into that. But, you know, I I had a, a, a former youth minister tell me that, you know, the two hottest TV stations for teenagers and college students today is MTV and VH1. And the most popular shows they now watch are no longer the music videos, but they're the reality television shows. And he was sharing with me one of the most popular today. Some of your kids are probably watching it. It's called A Shot of Love with a girl named Tila Tequila. Tila Tequila is a bisexual girl who is trying to choose between 12 guys and 12 girls. Each week she eliminates one until she, gets, she ends up with one. And between each, each week, you know, they'll all get together and get in the hot tub and mess around and do all kinds of things. Last season she chose a guy. This year she chose a girl. This youth minister sent me another one yesterday of another new show. And you would, I, I could sit here, we could spend the rest of the morning me telling you all the, the, uh, the perverse TV shows or the way sex is perverted, but you know, that's not really the point I want to make. What I really want to, the, the point that I really want to make and ask you to consider is the spiritual worldview behind all of this. Look what happens to human sexuality. When God is irrelevant in a culture. And the the question that I would would, would ask you to consider is, do you see how this is filtering down into our culture and into people's lives? Do you see where it's taking us? Our view of God is everything. Take the value of human life. You know, now now, now books and books and books have have been written on this. But let me just share one simple illustration. You know, both Hitler and Stalin, both of them, their religious worldview led them to kill millions of innocent people with no remorse at all. And then on the other hand, you take Mother Teresa, her worldview led her to minister to the outcasts that the rest of the world had forgotten. Now, all three of these people, Hitler, Stalin, and Mother Teresa, all believed strongly that they were doing what is right and what is good, but their spiritual worldview made all the difference. Now I want to bring one a little closer to home for us as Americans. If you ask any American who is the most evil and twisted person to ever live in this country, most people or many people would say Jeffrey Dahmer. It's been a while since he was killed in prison. But for, for maybe some of you young men, he was, a guy, he was a serial killer who not only tortured his victims, but after he killed them, he cannibalized them. And whether you know it or not, he was, before he was killed in prison, he did several interviews on national television. I saw him do one with he and his father and Stone Phillips. Fascinating conversation. And what was so interesting, he, was, he came across, he was very sane, he was very normal, and he was very intelligent. But in one of these interviews, he was asked why he tortured, killed, and cannibalized so many people. I want you to listen to his response. This is a quote verbatim off this TV show. He says, The pe- people watching me on TV have all, all have desires. Some may be the desire to exercise and work out, others to go to a movie and to eat ice cream, others like fast food. But people have desires. People are going to satisfy their desires Unless they have sufficient reason not to, so if people want to satisfy the desires for ice cream or fast food, they're going to do this unless there is an overriding reason that says they shouldn't do it. When I was in high school, I found within myself the desire to torture animals. I didn't believe in God, therefore I did not believe in a judgment after death. I didn't believe we were here for a purpose. It seemed. It seemed to me <clears throat> we evolved from slime, and when we die, our particles return to slime. I have four score and ten years to live on this earth, if I'm lucky. Given that, I wasn't here for a purpose, and I'm going to die, and that is the end of me, and there is no reason why I was here. I could not find any sufficient reason to deny the satisfaction of my desires. And so I tortured animals. And it got to a point that it no longer satisfied me. So I decided at that point to torture human beings. And frankly, listen to this. Frankly, I could not think of a reason why I shouldn't, given my view of reality. Now guys, I'm not saying that if if you don't believe in God, you'll become an evil killer. But what I am saying is, look where his spiritual worldview took him. I want to give you one more example. This is a powerful one, and it's probably the most pertinent to what I want to say to you this morning. Several years ago, there was a debate at Arizona State University between two philosophers. One was William Lane Craig. This man is brilliant. He has two PhDs in philosophy. I've heard him speak. He's quite eloquent and quite brilliant. The other one was a guy by the name of Douglas Joseph, who was a philosophy professor at North Carolina State. And they debated the issue of the existence of God, and they centered their discussion on evil and human suffering. And it was packed with students. Now Lane, who was a Christian, laid out this brilliant argument and then it was Joseph's turn, Joseph's turn, and he laid out an equally brilliant argument. And they said the audience was equally divided, so they were cheering their person when they would make a, a, a really good, pertinent point. And then they had a question and answer time where students could come, come to a microphone and ask questions. And Kelly Kohlberg, an author who was there who wrote about it, said it was, at that point the, the debate was somewhat of a draw until one student came up and asked this question. The question was, can each of you tell us what difference your worldview makes in your personal life? And Dr. Craig, the Christian, said that as a philosopher, you know, with all my knowledge that I had gained, says he had searched in vain for meaning and for hope and only found it when he finally came to believe in Jesus Christ. He said that Jesus changed his mind, his heart, and his marriage. He said, I came to know joy for the first time, he said. I can't help but want to share the wonder of Christ whenever I am welcome to give reason for the hope within me. I just can't keep him to myself. He's had such an impact on my life. And then all eyes turned to Professor Jessup. And after Craig made his remarks, he said, very thoughtfully, he said, if I have to share my hope with someone, he said, I really don't have much to say. He said, I'd tell them just to go home, put on the Grateful Dead, and play chess on your computer. And after he said this, there was dead silence. And then several of his supporters gasped at his response because they understood for the first time the connection between beliefs and the living of life you see i don't think we realize how belief or our belief about god and spiritual reality has such an impact on our understanding of life and how life works furthermore I'd contend that modern secular people are really having a hard time finding purpose and meaning in life. As Derek Bach, as the president of of Harvard at the time, was asked, what is the number one problem with the students of Harvard? What is the number one problem that they are faced with? And his answer, without blinking, was leading lives that are empty. That's the number one problem that they have to deal with. Now, as I look around this audience this morning, I would have to say this does not look like an audience that probably watches the Oprah Winfrey show. But, you know, there are a lot of people that do. I mean, her ratings are huge. And a couple of years ago, she had a show, and I guess this was a series that she was doing on answers to life's great questions. And this particular segment, this particular uh, show was, What is the Meaning of Life? What is the Meaning of Life? And they had the first segment. And they, she came up with, she didn't give any real answers. They didn't come up with re- any real answers. And when they went to the commercial break, Oprah would say, when we return, we are going to give you the answer to what is the meaning of life. And they break for a commercial. You know, they went through the entire show and never came up with an answer. And just as they were signing off, the last thing Oprah said was this, I quote, You will just have to look within yourself to find the answer. You'll just have to look within yourself and just find the answer. What kind of answer is that? I mean, you know, we have a number of businessmen sitting out here today. Next time someone comes into your office and has a problem and you don't know how to respond, why don't you just tell them, look within yourself. (laughs) The answer's there. It's somewhere within yourself. You know, I think Dr. Seligman, the person that I opened with, was right in identifying the problem with the baby boomer generation. We don't know how to relate our lives to a higher purpose. So I want to take a few minutes and just talk about the issue of purpose in life. You know, it's what the Greek philosophers called logos, the reason for life. And if you think about it, purpose implies design. A lot of you have heard me share this before because it's been so meaningful to my life. It's what's given my life real coherence. In a world that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense sometimes. But the idea of purpose implies design. I mean, take my cell phone, for example. It clearly has a purpose to communicate, to communicate with someone that's not in this room that I want to talk to. Now, this is not just a piece of Plastic. It didn't jump into existence. It has a designer. You see the little keypad. You see the little place where you can hear. The little antenna. It clearly was designed by someone. And the point I want to make is that purpose implies design. And in order to have design, you have to have a designer. And when you look at the cell phone, its purpose for existence is fairly self-evident. But when you look at a human life, it's not so clear. When you look at your own life, I mean, that's what philosophers have asked over the centuries. What is the meaning of life? Oprah Winfrey struggles with it. But you know, the Christian worldview points to a very logical answer. Let me just take a minute, I want to lay it out for you. Because we're given a very clear indication in the Bible about our design. We're designed in the image of God. You're probably familiar with that term. But what it means, we are basically, our lives reflect who He is and what He's like. You realize we have so many of God's characteristics because we bear His image. We can think, reason, and be creative because God thinks reasons and is creative. We have a personality. We have emotions because God does. Look at Jesus, the Son of God. He, he has a personality, he has emotions just as we do. But most significantly, we are relational beings who can love just as he is a relational being who loves. And if you don't believe that we are designed to be relational and it is, it is inherent to who we are as people, if that were not the case, there would be no such thing as loneliness. And loneliness is, a, is something that deeply plagues human beings. And this is why the Trinity is so important. Most people don't, you know, the Trinity is something hard to get your arms around. But this is so important that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been in relationship throughout eternity. And you know what? We, you and I, are the only creatures that can have a love relationship with Him. Furthermore, we're told why He put us here. I rarely hear anybody talk about this. But the scripture is very clear of why God put us here. Colossians 1.16 says, All things have been created by Him and for Him. In Isaiah, it says, He speaks about this people who I formed for myself. 1 Corinthians 8.6. It's really a real long verse. And right in the middle, there's this little phrase that says, We exist for Him. And probably my favorite is 1 Corinthians 1, nine that says, We have been called to live our lives in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And that word fellowship literally means companionship. We've been designed, guys, to live our lives in a love relationship with God. This is what we have been put here to do. And as St. Augustine said so eloquently, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts will not find rest until they rest in Thee." Then I would also contend that we function best as people when we do what we're designed to do. And when we fail to do that, we malfunction, not only in our individual lives but relationally as well. You know, most of you uh, probably know that the first great philosophers, and I realize we're not philosophy students or experts, but the first great philosophers were Greeks, the early Greeks. Now, Socrates is somebody we're all familiar with his name. His, his, his pupil, his, his uh, I guess, star pupil was Plato. Plato's star pupil was Aristotle. And the Greeks believed, and by the way, these men lived right around the same time All the, uh, a number of these Old Testament prophets lived, just in different parts of the world. And these philosophers believed in the concept called the logos, L-O-G-O-S. It's where we get the word logic from. And it literally means the reason for life. And these Greeks believed that when you found the logos, the reason for life, that you would be complete and whole as a human being. But you know what the problem was? They never could agree on what the Logos was. And this is why several hundred years later, when the Apostle John comes along, in the opening words of probably the the most prominent or most popular of all the four Gospels, the, 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 uh, the Apostle John drops a bombshell When he says, and this is the first verse of the book of John, he says, In the beginning was, and the Greek word they use is logos. In the beginning was the reason for life. And it was with God. And the reason for life became a human being and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Do you realize what John was saying? He is saying that the reason for life is not a philosophical Principle. It was a person. It was Jesus, the Son of God. And what John was saying is when you know Him, when you love Him, when you serve Him with your life, when you get your life in sync with His purpose for your life, that's when you find meaning. That's when life makes sense and is coherent. That's what. Dr. Craig said in the debate, it's what changed his life when he met the person of Christ. And so the question that we need to ask this morning is, have we found that higher purpose in our personal lives? Have we found the reason for life? Do we know Him? I would have to say, based on the work that I do and the counseling that I do, With businessmen, the answer for so many is no. No. So, what keeps us from finding it? What keeps us from getting there? You know, if I believe in God, why doesn't my belief really impact my life? Well, as I wrap this up, let me just share this thought with you. I got two final thoughts, two really illustrations. I think there are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of reasons we don't connect with Him. But let me get to the heart of the matter. And you know, it is a matter of the heart. You know, we live from the heart. Life flows from the heart. As Solomon says, the heart of man reflects the man. And in St. Augustine's biography, and St. Augustine lived a couple of hundred years after Christ, He reflects on an event that took place in his life, in his youth. Now, Augustine is probably one of the most revered Christians in all of history, with both Catholic and Protestants. Incredible man. But as a young man, he was like a lot of young men today. He was a drunk, and he was a philanderer. And then he became a Christian, and his life changed dramatically. But as an older man, he was reflecting back on an event that took place in his youth. He calls it the pear tree incident. It's where a number of his friends climbed a fence of a pear orchard. You know, there were signs, I'm sure, that said, do not trespass. But he and his friends, they climbed the fence, they loaded up with pears, they ran off, they ate the pears, and he said... We got such great delight out of this. And he looked back on that incident and he asked himself, "Why? not only why did we do this, but why did we get such great delight from stealing and eating these pears? He says, were we hungry? He said, not really. He said, were we poor and just needed the food? No, we had plenty to eat. And then he says, you know, to be quite honest, I don't really like pears that much. But I got great delight this day of eating those pears. And why is that? And he said, he really has examined his life. He said, you know, as soon as someone said, don't go in there, he said, I wanted to go. He said, I began to realize that deep in my heart, there was a voice that was crying. My will be done. My will be done not somebody else's will, not God's will, but my will be done. I want to live the the way I want to live. I want to live for me. And he realized that that was the deep cry down deep in his heart. And he said, at the root of every heart, there's that voice that cries, my will be done. It's a selfishness. It's a depravity of the heart. It's what the Bible calls sinfulness. And Augustine says it's at the center. It's deep down in every person's heart. And he said, this is what I, he said, I realize this is what distorts everything in life. Every relationship and every decision is distorted by this desire that I have for myself. But you know what else he said? I also realize... That to become a Christian, you have to acknowledge this sinfulness. You have to acknowledge that it's there. You have to acknowledge your need for God's forgiveness through Christ's atoning death on the cross. But you know what else he said he realized? Ultimately, you have to relinquish your will to Him. If you're going to be one of His, you have to relinquish your will to Him. To follow Him. Somebody just recently pointed out to me that the one message that Jesus hammered home more than any other message, he said this over and over and over. He says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. He says, if you want to save your life, you have to surrender it. You have to surrender your will to him. And you know, unfortunately, I think this is where many of us refuse Him. We refuse to let go. You know, this was a battle I had in my life for years. Resisting God. Resisting, relinquishing my life to His. It was a battle of the heart. And it is a battle. It, the issue of relinquishing my will to follow His. I want to leave you with a final illustration, and it's a powerful one. And it comes from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've ever read them. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're children's stories that he wrote, but adults have read them more than kids. They're allegorical, and they're powerful. And to set the stage, I'm going to read to you a couple of paragraphs Just a little incident in the, the, uh, I think it's five or six different books. This one's from The Silver Chair. But to set the stage, you need to understand that the Bible speaks consistently of a thirst that exists in every human soul. And that our yearning for purpose and meaning is related to this thirst. Ultimately, it's a thirst for God. But the scripture says that this thirst is quenched only by living water, by God himself. You see that word living water in both the Old and New Testaments. You remember when Jesus encounters the woman at the well. She'd been married five times. She was currently living with a man. And Jesus hones in on the spiritual need in her life and offers her living water. Now in the story that I'm going to read to you, there's a girl named Jill, and she represents us. Her life is clearly focused on herself, her will be done. And if you know anything about the Chronicles, Aslan, this great and mighty lion, represents Christ. Jill grows unbearably thirsty. She can hear a stream somewhere in the forest. Driven by her thirst, she begins to look for the source of water, cautiously, because she's fearful of running into the lion. She finds the stream, but she is paralyzed by what she sees there. There's Aslan, huge and golden. Still as a statue, but terribly alive. And he's sitting beside the water. She waits for a long time, wrestling with her thoughts and hoping maybe he'll just go away. That's kind of like us. We want Jesus to be at a distance. Then Aslan says, if you are thirsty, you may drink. Jill is startled and refuses to come closer. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Well, then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? Again, typical. God, I want what you can give me. I want you to bless me, but I don't want you. You go away. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And just as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The the, the delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her near frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? Will you leave me alone? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat, little girls, she said? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, city and realm, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, then I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. You know, guys, Jesus doesn't give us many options. But so many of us spend our whole lives looking for some other stream that's out there in life. But Christ says very clearly, There is no other stream to quench the thirst of your soul. And he's very clear about this. And I leave you with this thought. If we don't drink from this spring, we will die. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for that living water that you offer each of us. And yet we realize that the real struggle in all of our lives is that we do want our wills lord help us to relinquish that help us to be willing to let go and connect with you the truth of life and drink that living water that only you can offer as we depart we do thank you for all the good friendships that are existing in this room. We thank You for our families. We thank You for the lives that You've given us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast With Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to Richard at richardesimmons3.com.